Hey there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one solemn page of Talmud each day. And in today's pages, Bavakama 17 and 18, come across the following somewhat chaotic passage. Have a listen. The sages taught, if chickens were flying from place to place and broke vessels with their wings, their owner pays the full cost of the damage as this is a subcategory of trampling. By contrast, if the damage was caused by the wind generated by their wings, the owner pays half the cost of the damage in accordance with the halakha in the case of pebbles. Sumachos says the owner pays the full cost of the damage. It is taught in another baraita, if chickens were hopping upon dough or upon produce and they sullied it with their feet, or if they pecked at it and caused damage, their owner pays the full cost of the damage. If in the course of their hopping, they stirred up dust or propelled pebbles, the owner pays half the cost of the damage. Sumacho says he pays the full cost of the damage. It's kind of a, an almost comical scenario, but if you stop and think about it, it's kind of terrifying. It is a reminder from the Talmud that sometimes in life, we just find ourselves grappling with circumstances far beyond our control, wild and violent occurrences that we had nothing to do with, yet now we must control. Friends, I want to do something a little bit different today. When I read this passage in Bava Kama, when I was trying to imagine these people, all of a sudden went into their home and found that it was completely ravaged by natural demonic forces outside their control. I'm very sorry to report that my mind went immediately to the events of October 7th and the lives of those Israelis and American Jews who one fine morning woke up to realize that they must now grapple with things far beyond their control, things that they never thought imaginable. So here's what I want to do. I want to play for you an interview that we ran on the Unorthodox podcast just the other day. It's an interview between my co-host, Stephanie Butnick, and her dear friend and sorority sister, Liel Slifer. Yes, the other Liel. Several of Liel Slifer's family members were killed on October 7th, and others were taken hostage. And ever since, she has done whatever she could to figure out what to do in a situation like this, how to control things that were ultimately completely beyond her control. Have a listen. Yael Slifer, welcome to Unorthodox. Thanks for having me, Stephanie. So you're actually the first Liel in my life. And I think about this a lot. You and I probably met in like 2006 in Durham, North Carolina, mm -hmm. when I joined the Kappa Kappa Gamma sorority. <laughs> I don't know that we knew that this would always come full circle, but it is funny that we've known each other a very, very, very long time. A very long time. You went to law school with my sister, mm -hmm. and that was like another funny connection. And now we're basically kind of almost related, right? Correct. We are mishpacha. Your husband is my mom's first cousin's nephew. Correct. Your Aunt Janet is also my Aunt Janet now. I feel like I need to tell you this. I had no idea that you were Jewish, that you were Israeli when we were in college together. Is that crazy? I had no idea that there were any other Jews in Kappa, to be honest. I think about this a lot now because of what it looks like to be Jewish on college campuses today, right? Like you're super engaged. Like you have to know all of this stuff. There's just so many bad things happening to Jewish students on college campuses. I feel like we almost operated in a bubble back in like the you know mid to late aughts where like, at a school like Duke, you didn't have to be, like, super engaged on your Jewishness or on, like, Israel. 
Right. And, but, you know, I did, like, I went to the, our Hillel center, right. I went there quite a bit. I did a lot of holidays there. And you're right though. We, we did not engage with each other as Jews. Really. That was sort of a secondary aspect of all of our identities, I think. So will you walk me a little bit through like your upbringing in Texas, but being Israeli. Sure. Okay. So highlight reel of my life. It starts with a great story of my father being American, going to Israel when he was in his mid twenties, right after leaving the air force, meeting my mother an Israeli over there. Her family on her father's side has never left Israel. Her father was part of the Kohanim who never left after the destruction of the second temple. His cousin my grandfather's cousin, one of them, still runs a synagogue in Pekin, which has stones in it, which have been dated back 2,000 years ago. Oh, and my mom's mother came from Afghanistan. They were all expelled in the 50s when um, Israel became a state. So he meets my mother, who has no experience with United States or Americans, really. They fall in love, get married, and move over to the, the states. And they quickly moved to Fort Worth, Texas. My father worked in um, the defense industry. And there's a lot of that in Fort Worth. And I grew up there. I went to a very, very small school called the Fort Worth Hebrew Day School for elementary school. There were maybe four kids in my fourth grade class when we graduated. But it was a wonderful little bubble to grow up in. And I never felt any different um, because I grew up in that safe little bubble. And there were always Israelis coming in and out of Fort Worth because of all the, the defense contracting work that goes on there. We would go to Israel every summer for the whole summer. Day school got out, the day school started. And so I got to spend a lot of time with my family over there. Because my mother, is, you know, I just mentioned, she's the only person who really left Israel. So all my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, my grandparents are all over there. I speak Hebrew fluently, read it and write it. And that was my life for 18 years until I went to Duke and I, I met you. <laughs> And then you end up, I think I'm contractually obligated to say you went to Harvard Law School um, afterwards. Yes, that is. And now <laughs> you're a big time lawyer. Yeah. You're back in Texas. You married David Slifer, my second cousin's nephew. Um, and bring mm-hmm. us to speed on what happens next. So uh, I married David. Uh, we, we lived in New York for a while. We moved back to Dallas once we started talking about having kids. So now we've got two little girls and a third baby who's Due date was a few days ago, and I'm sure by the time this airs, we'll find out who it is. Uh, (laughs) And uh, we've just been living in Dallas ever since, and we felt safe. We felt comfortable. And then I remember it was sometime late Friday, October 6th, early morning hours of October 7th. I'm very pregnant at that point, so I'm getting up many times a night to go to the bathroom and I just check my phone. All of a sudden I see all of these clips, terrorists jumping out of trucks in Israel and attacking people. And I will say that I am maybe more than your average person, slightly desensitized to some of that because it's happened before. Um, There have been one-off suicide bombers. There have been, you know, one-off attacks here and there, but it's normally limited to one, two, three, maybe max four terrorists at a time and then it's quickly neutralized. 
But then the more I started scrolling through Instagram and the news, I saw that, no, this is a serious thing. And so I started texting my family and friends in Israel asking about what was going on. And unbeknownst to me, at the same time, my mother had been texting her cousin who lives in Kibbutz Be'eri. And she said, we've heard the sirens for the rockets. And so we're all in the bomb shelter and we're safe. Don't worry about it. Well, you know, we kind of go to sleep, wake up, wake up in the morning and the news just gets worse and worse about what's happening. And it takes a while for us to fully comprehend the magnitude of what happened on October 7th in Israel. And then midway through the morning, my mother tells me, you know, I ask about, because I hear more news about Kibbutz Be'eri, where I know my mom's cousin Kineret lives with her husband. And I ask, you know, is she okay? And that's when she tells me, no, actually, they were taken hostage. And I remember I was sitting on my back patio, my girls were just playing, and my husband was sitting next to me, and I just started crying. And it was so disorienting to not know what was going on. I just I just needed more information. For the next 48 hours, all I was doing was Googling Kibbutz Be'eri, Kibbutz Be'eri. And slowly but surely, we found out that Kineret had been taken. Uh, the night before, because this was um, Shabbat, it was going to be Simchat Torah. The night before for Yom Shishi, Shabbat dinner, she had invited Kinneret and her husband Eshel had invited all of their kids over because everybody had been sort of traveling. Her son Alon had been in South Africa with his family. Her daughter Carmel had been in Turkey. And then her other son, Or, was also there. And so they invited everybody for a big Shabbat dinner and to spend the night at their house. So everybody except for Or spent the night at the house. and. When they woke up the next morning, there was the attack. And so my mom tells me, well, we know that Kinneret was taken because we saw a video of her taken by the terrorists walking barefoot. Everybody sort of hid in different places in the house. Eshel was able to hide in the bathroom. There were gunshots through the bathroom, but he was he came out of that alive. The terrorists never found him. Hamas found Kinneret's daughter, Carmel, who is maybe six or seven months older than me. We used to have sleepovers together as kids. And they took her. And then at the very end, they went back into the house and they went to the bomb shelter and her son, Alon, ran out and said, I'm the last one. There's nobody else in here. Well, he was trying to protect his wife, Yarden, and their three-year-old daughter, Geffen, who were hiding. And the terrorists went in and found them too. And so at this point now, it's Saturday the 7th, and all we know is that everybody has been taken, except for Eshel. We learn the next day that Alon suddenly appears with his daughter, Geffen, thank God. What it happened was they took Kinneret to one place. They took Carmel somewhere else. We don't know what happened to them quite at this point on the 8th. Alon and Yarden, three-year-old little Geffen, were taken in a car. Alon's hands zip-tied. They start driving them to the Gaza border. They throw another kibbutz member from Bayri in the trunk. And Alon says to Yarden, we need to escape. We got to get out of it. So the car stops at one point because they come across a tank and the terrorists get out to investigate. And Alon and Yarden look at each other and they know we have to make our escape now. Yarden grabs her daughter and Alon run. They just run as fast as they can. And the terrorists start shooting after them and chasing them. And Yarden can't keep holding her daughter anymore. So she passes her off to her husband. The answer is still zip tied. And they split up to try to evade the terrorists. And Alon hides with his three-year-old little girl all night and all day in a field with some trees. And he's able to make it back to the kibbutz the next day. But we don't know what happened to Yarden. And the next day, 
and for many days thereafter. Alon has gone back to look for his wife and he can't find her anywhere. And we still don't know what happened to Carmel. And on the the night, I believe, or might have been still the afternoon of the eighth, I'm not quite sure. I was still, you know, looking for information and I was scrolling through the internet and um I found a video of passages in Kibbutz Bayeri and I decided to watch it. And I saw my mom's cousin Kinneret laying lifeless. Um they'd shot her and just left her on the corner of the street in the kibbutz with other hostages. And the crazy part of it is that at that point, we still didn't have her body. I, 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 I'm the one who had to tell my mother and we told our family in Israel that we'd seen this video of her. And it wasn't until about a week later that we found her body. The terrorists had just taken it and thrown it. That's the only closure we've had so far is finding Kinneret's body. But Carmel and Yarden may be hostages in Gaza. Um, we don't know if they're alive or dead. We don't know what's happened to them. And we are still hoping and praying for their return. Now, I have cousins in Israel, and I cannot imagine what this must be like for you. You've really done something amazing. You've you've been on the news a bunch. You've been talking about this. How have you seen your role as an advocate for your family from all the way over here? So it's really changed. I'll say that I first posted something about my family because I wanted to get some awareness out immediately about what was happening because people in the U.S. needed to know that this was impacting the world. This is not just a problem that is thousands of miles away. It is impacting Americans too. They're also American hostages. They're hostages from every country. So at first I, I posted something about that. And then I had a lot of friends who are more in the media reach out to me and ask me if I would be willing to share um, my family's story and talk about it. And at first, I will say I was hesitant to do so. It was also fresh and painful. And I I just didn't feel like sharing that trauma with the world. I, I just sort of wanted to compartmentalize it. But the more I thought about it and the more they convinced me to do it, I realized that it was very important to talk about this, especially as I saw the Hamas PR campaign getting stronger and stronger. And I knew that we had to talk about what was happening in Israel, especially considering how many people were just denying the atrocities that had occurred. And so I I went on Fox and Friends. I was on the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer. I think I did a piece for a local radio station and Inside Edition and a couple of other things. Um, and the more I talked about it, the more I realized that this was reaching a very wide audience. And I'll, I'll just tell you a really great story of how far this story went. Um, there, There's this Uber driver in New York City who picks up some 20-something-year-old woman, not overtly Jewish in any way, but she, but he has sort of an overtly Israeli name. And she spoke to him, and, and they both discovered they were Jewish, and she mentioned that she had just seen this girl on the news um, talking about her family and how touching it was and how much it made her realize the impact of what was going on in Israel. And then she mentioned my name. Well, this Uber driver happens to be related to my aunt's husband's sister and some kibbutz in Israel. 
he tells his sister, sister tells my my aunt's husband, my uncle, my uncle calls me and is like, look at how your story is just going around the world. And that's that was really touching to me. And so I knew that I was doing the right thing by getting out there and, and talking about it. I will say I, I have gone through several stages, I think, of grief and emotions and feeling with what is going on at first. It was profound sadness. And um, I just wanted to separate from the world. And then it became, I need to talk about it to, to bring awareness. And now I am fully in the anger stage, um, seeing what is going on in college campuses and just in the streets, uh, you know, on the internet, it is unbelievable to the hatred and the anti-Semitism and the complete lack of awareness of so many people uh, across the world. It really is sickening. And I imagine when you have the personal connection, we all have a personal connection, but when you know that it's your family in there, you're just like, what? Like, I, 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 I don't know what to do when I see people who I, you know, nominally respect just reposting things and just giving in to just like the dumbest misinformation campaign. And I, I just I find it revolting. I can't imagine how much more so you find this knowing, you know, just the horrors firsthand. I will say <laughs> the, the silver lining of all of this is I think I have done a pretty darn good job picking my friends and acquaintances because I have yet to see any person that I actually know post something on social media that is anti-Israel or anti-Jew in any way, which is shocking to me because I talk to a lot of my friends who who had the same reaction as you. They're seeing lots of people fall for this PR campaign that they personally are friends with, and that's very hurtful to them. Uh, I guess I just have a, a, <laughs> a good bullshit meter, if we can say that. <laughs> But um, I, I really, nobody that I personally know has posted anything that has upset me in any way, which is great. It is, it is at least, at least there is that form of relief for me. But seeing like, I mean, I'm going to straight call it a pogrom in Russia at the airport, right? They, they went and talked Jews at the woman who was just stabbed in Lyon in France. Um, the, the people in New York city ripping down posters of children who are taken hostage with no remorse. All of this, even though I don't know these people, it's, it is, it is astounding to me, especially, especially the sorts of people who, if they stepped one toe into Gaza, would be executed on the spot. That is the most astounding thing. That they are out there supporting the very people who are calling for their own death and destruction. I don't understand that. I, I just, that, that, that is something fundamentally broken in these people. So can I ask how you're holding up on a personal level? I mean, you have young daughters who are old enough to sort of sense, I imagine, that something's going on with mom. You're incredibly pregnant right now. I, I just, how are you both doing this advocacy work, taking care of yourself, cluing in your family? I imagine checking in all the time on all your different family members here and over in Israel. How, how, are, how are you holding up on that front? You know, I like to say that there's a reason that um, Gal Gadot, an Israeli woman, was tapped to play that role because. Israeli women, I think we're just built different. There is an attitude of yalla, you know, like we just, we just have to do it. There are things you just have to do, right? I will say that my girls 
have given me such hope and joy during this time. Um, this new baby, God willing, that is on the way is the future of Israel. You know, I, I am directly growing the Jewish people, which has given me a lot of hope and strength, even though I'm very, very pregnant and very tired. You know, I've still been working a lot. It, it feels good to feel productive. But there's just another part of me that is like, this is just what you have to do. You know, I think a lot about the book of Esther and when things get difficult for Esther, Mordecai says to her, you know, relief may come from elsewhere, right? But who knows, maybe you've been made for a time such as this. And and I, I think to myself, right, like this, this is my time. I have to act. I have to put one foot in front of the other. I have to say something. I cannot stay silent. And there is just, I, I just have to, yala, you know, I just have to do it. I just have to get on. When you think about Carmel and Yarden, I mean, what do you wish they know right now? What would you say to them? Well, first to Yarden, I would, I hope she knows that her husband and daughter are safe. As a mother, you think a lot about your kids before yourself. And I just hope that Yarden at least knows that her daughter is safe and loved. And for both of them, I hope they know that the whole world is fighting for their return. They're not alone, that we're trying to come and get them. And the most heartening thing is seeing how the state of Israel has said, and the IDF has basically said to the world, you can either come with us, you can join us in this fight, but we are not stopping no matter what. So if you're not with us, fine, we'll do it on our own. And and that, above all else, is such an important thing for Jews who don't live in Israel to realize why the state of Israel is so important. Because if we did not have our own country, if we did not have our own military, it would be just like the Holocaust all over again. And so Israel is such an important piece and should be such an important piece of every Jew's identity, no matter where they live. Israel is protecting Judaism for all of us. Leo, I'm sending you so much love, thinking of you and your family, and I'm so grateful for everything that you're doing. I feel so lucky to be connected to you in so many different ways, and I think it does show how we are all connected, right? You know, we always joke that everyone in Israel is like a few degrees separate from each other. We really, really saw that in the aftermath of everything that happened. But I think it's true for all of us Jews, and so I feel I feel lucky to to know you and to have you as a friend. You're so sweet, Stephanie, and have you as family, too. Yes, family. <laughs> can I can I also tell you that I also know the other Leo independently? I heard of you? this yeah. recently. <laughs> We're airing this, by the way. He's like, I was like, I really want to talk to this the, my first Leo, and, and he was just like, Oh, Leo in Dallas, and I was like, <laughs> Yes. How 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 do you know each other? It's amazing. It's a perfectly small world. And it feels right that my the two Liels in my life know each other. Yeah, I think we're like the only two Liels in the United States. Because <laughs> he's, yeah, he insists it's a totally made up name. And I was like, it's not made up. I know another one. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, <laughs> I have heard of one other one. I remember I was in Israel at a playground and I heard a little boy, his mother was calling him. He was named Liel. But other than us three, I have never heard of another Liel. That is some serious kinship. Um, <laughs> well, I hope to see you soon. And I'm just thinking all the best thoughts for you and your family right now. Thank you so much, Stephanie. I hope you enjoyed this interview and I want to add a joyous coda. Liel had since had her baby girl and she named her Kineret after her aunt killed on October 7th. And here is the strange part. 
the baby Kinneret was born on the late Kinneret's very birthday. This has been Take One. If you enjoy the show, and I hope that you do, then you are really going to love the new book just published by me. It's called How the Talmud Can Change Your Life, Surprisingly Modern Advice from a Very Old Book. You can order it now at your local bookstore or directly from the publisher through the link in this here podcast description or through that big online store whose logo is, you know, a smile. As always, please go rate and review Take One on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You could get your Take One t-shirts and mugs and other swag at tabletstudios.com and you could subscribe to our weekly newsletter at tabletm.ag slash take one newsletter. Take One is a Tablet Studios production. The show is hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz, and is produced and edited by Daron Ruskay, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team also includes Stephanie Butnick, Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Courtney Hazlett, and Tanya Singer. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash takeone or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. I hope we have made your day a little more Talmudic. Talmudic.